Hello and welcome to the Football Psychology Show. My name is John Massori and this week I'm joined as ever by my co-host Luke Chiverton. Morning John. And our regular guest Dr Misa Jervis. Misa, hi. Hi, lovely to be here. Just before we start, quick shout out to our partners at Sporting Bounce and the Set Pieces. Um, so Sporting Bounce is the online directory for sports performance. It's managed by, um, by former guest of the show, Professor Mark Jones. And the Set Pieces is a website which is part of the Guardian's Sports Network and home to some first-rate opinion on, on all things football. Um, so that's, that's the, the admin out of the way. Luke, how are you? Good. I mean, good to see you both this morning. It feels like the world's been turned upside down a little bit since we recorded our last episode two weeks ago. Um, mm. We've got three psychology topics from the world of football to discuss over the next 45 minutes. So I guess we'll crack on with those and hopefully free our minds from some of the turmoil elsewhere for, for the short term, at least. So, I mean, looking ahead to the weekend, it's the it's the Manchester derby uh, on Sunday, the second Manchester derby of the season. The first was that incredibly one-sided 2-0 win for City at Old Trafford towards the back end of Oni Gunnar Solskjaer's tenure as manager at United. Misha, we've talked about the pressure that comes with, with playing in big games on, on previous episodes. One of the things we possibly haven't touched upon as much is the the pressure that's created by fans and, and the effect that that can have on players. Now, clearly, derbies mean a hell of a lot to, to the fans of clubs. Um, how do players prepare psychologically for, for matches where there's greater levels of fan expectation? I guess as a consequence of that, generally a more hostile atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, that that's a... That's a a question that has many different facets to it, if you like. Um, I think it's really about managing what happens within the club, because if you get caught up in, in the noise of the fans, it can be really, really distracting. Um, And it depends how, how the game has to be uh, presented to the players, if you like. So of course there's going to be noise about it. And of course there's going to be media about it. And of course, and of course, so all of those things are actually really predictable. But if you, the meaning that we put on our competitions changes our potential ability to think, yeah, we can cope with it or no, we can't. And if we start to think that this is too big, it's too overwhelming, it's this big, difficult, challenging moment, we are more likely to walk ourselves into a threat state, which is obviously what we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. So I, I think, you know, the, the, way, the way I try to, to describe it, and, and, and this is not just for derby games, it's just that it's sort of noise and it's not helpful necessarily. So, you know, whether it's good, whether it's bad, view that noise with the same um, with the same perspective, which is actually there's nothing you can do about it. The bit that you can control is what happens in our dressing room on our training pitch within the, the sanctity, if you like, of the club environment and just kind of accept that that is what's going to happen. But you can choose whether you get dragged away by it, dragged into it and it starts to impact on what you do, or whether you simply step away from it and observe it and go, yeah, so there's noise. Okay, moving on. Yeah, and, and when you, because this, this happens time and again, Misha, when you see managers coming out uh, talking about this being a really special game, it, is, is that really just a kind of nod to the fans, you know, yeah. a kind of, well, we'll tick the box for the, for the kind of press coverage? Side I, of think, I mean, I think that they there is an expectation that that is part of their job, isn't it? 
and they are if you like the the connection between what's happening inside and what the fans are seeing outside and you know if you had a manager coming out and saying oh this is just another game the fans would be very upset because for them they feel it in a completely different way so no manager is going to say that um because it's it's not helping the narrative of getting the fans behind them and creating that energy and and sometimes in a sense in, in a in a stadium the noise is energy and it's it's what you do with that energy and how you can how you can apply it in a sense just pick up on that last point i mean i suppose there are some some exceptions to that so i was actually as part of a part as far as some pre pre pod preparation which which doesn't always happen on on this, on this show <laughs> i um I, I came across a quote from from Zane Zeman, who who actually who actually said apparently came out before uh, a derby i think this was during his time at roma and said it's just another game publicly now i, I mean obviously I, i'm not quite sure of the context there but i mean from your perspective, Misha, you know, is is that kind of a is that kind of a justifiable tactic? You know, is, is there kind of logic, but but behind that, kind of doing that publicly as opposed to just to the players? Um, I mean, you know, managers are going to know the narrative that they've worked with their players inside, and so therefore they know whether that's going to be useful, powerful, or not, depending mm-hmm. upon what has happened. the re- The reality is, in a season. It is just another game, you know, and, and, and the danger is, is that people get up and out, <laughs> you know, they get over aroused, they get, it's too important, it's too this, and, and they start moving away from their normal game, you know, they start forcing things, they start doing things that they wouldn't normally do because they want to create an impression because this is a really, really important game. Well, maybe that works, but maybe it doesn't. I mean, you only you only get three points for winning the derby, don't you? You don't you, you don't you don't get any more. So. Yeah, it, exactly. It's it is it is the same number of points, and I think you know you you were kind of asking questions around how you retain that focus and how you how you how you navigate the notion of aggression within that, and and when when it's noisy, when it's when it's kind of aggressive around you, your challenge is to is to find a different space to play. And I was going to ask you, um, the word aggression gets used a lot. And, and, and I thought we could maybe unpick that a little bit because I, I'm not sure that that's a useful word either. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good, really good point. So just, just for anyone, anyone listening, so this, this is a kind of reference to a, a, an interview that, that we conducted last year with, with Boris Ballant. He's the, the Dynamo Zagreb um, psychologist. I probably should say that, yeah, he is talking in his second language. So that, that could be one of the reasons that that word was, was used. I think what he was, what he was trying to talk about was the, the trade-off sometimes between focus and energy. So he said, he said when, when he spoke to us, he said, some players are very good at focusing, but their energy levels are too low. But when we try to boost the players... They become more energized, but lose focus. Yeah. And I think maybe that that's potentially quite relevant in a derby situation, which where where that I suppose trade off could be even more extreme potentially. Yeah, and I think again, it, you know, the word aggression is used, and and in my opinion, misused because aggression comes from a place of anger, and if you're angry, that means you've been hurt. 
Now, that is not a useful emotional landscape to be living in. Um, I think that it would be much better if we tried to talk about dominance and assertion, because really, in a sense, what you want is for your players to dominate the others. You want them to have power over. And um, it kind of reminded me of something that I did years and years ago with the England team, where um, we did some work. And I use this this word, which was called Savatra Vijay, which is a Sanskrit word for victory everywhere. And it became our kind of little mantra um, for how we can find those small wins everywhere on the pitch. So if there's if there's victory in my 1v1, if there's victory in my overlap run, if there's all of those small things, then actually I'm going to dominate the opponent. So I think that those those kind of ideas are actually much more emotionally um, neutral, whereas aggression is different because, as I said, it comes from that place of anger and ultimately that's hurt. And then we're not behaving in in the same way. We don't have that um, ability to focus. So I think it's changing the change the narrative. Um, to create that sense of dominance, victory everywhere, those those small wins, um, but continuously. Which I think that's a really interesting point, actually. I've, I've always been fascinated, is the word I'd use probably, by the obsession of the British football fan with commitment. And, and what that means usually is we want our players to be tough tackling, hard men who kind of are essentially aggressive players. And and there's always that thing, you know, you hear fans constantly saying, oh, they don't want it enough. They're not committed enough. And what they basically mean is, is you know, they don't, they don't think they're putting themselves around. They don't think they're being physical enough. And I've always thought, actually, commitment in football to me is it can be the very small diminutive winger who constantly again and again and again tries to take on their fullback. Absolutely. And that takes a great deal of bravery because, you know, if you sit on the ball, you're, you're you know, could get tackled you could get hurt but actually what that player is doing is trying to dominate that fullback and say every time I get the ball I'm going to make you think I'm going to make you do something and I'm not going to be afraid of any of anything and I do I do think sometimes derbies are a good example where that misplaced idea of commitment uh, can create quite aggressive quite hostile atmospheres and I agree with everything you said really that that takes away focus and mm-hmm possibly takes away the ability of the players to, to, to do what they, they probably should be doing in a more controlled way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we know how that can go wrong, you know, because, you know, red card, you're off, see you later. Yeah. Now, now what are we doing? You know, are the players going to reward that if somebody has just shown a lot of aggression in, in a way that is not, it is not managed and it is not controlled? Well, then, then they're blaming that player bizarrely for doing the very thing that they think they want their players to do <laughs> exactly yeah. like because because no one's no one's cheering someone for taking another player out and getting sent off it's that the language that we use i think is is important and 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 i think that there are assumptions that when people use that word aggression that we all know what we're talking about but maybe maybe it needs more clarity I mean, it, it sort of feels very apt that we've decided to focus on the word aggression on this particular episode of the pod. So I definitely agree with all of that, Misha. Indeed, indeed. Misha, are there any kind of, are there any particular techniques that that you would 
you know, employ uh, maybe not specifically prior to a derby, but maybe a, maybe a big maybe a big game uh, in order to to try and kind of achieve that 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 balance that we were talking about. Well, I think you have to, you know, I mean the 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 example I gave where we used that um, the Savatra VJ was actually in the European Championship where we we got to the final. Um, <laughs> this is when I was with the the women, so we kind of used that as it as it developed through um in the end we weren't we weren't ultimately successful but you know we 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 did we did things that were unexpected of us i think in in that tournament um and the other thing about that is that is that it's something that i can i can control i can manage i can i can control what i do in a 1v1 i can control how many times i track a runner I can, do you know what I mean? All of those things. Whereas this, this big thing called the outcome, the result, the this, actually, I, it's too big. And, and how can I control what the other, you know, 21 players on the pitch are doing? I can't. So it has to be something that I think, yes, I can do this. I can do that. I can do this. And so if I do my job, that means you can do your job. And therefore, as a collective, we are able to move forward. And Amisha, I just wanted to go back to the to the point you made around the, the harnessing the energy in the stadium when, when you were talking about fans, which I think is quite an interesting concept. And I guess in any kind of football situation or in, in any dressing room, you've got some very different personalities uh, within those teams. You've probably got the players who essentially freeze it out and, and barely notice it. I've seen interviews with players who say, I've, you know, I've, I've, not heard, <laughs> I've not heard a single word said from the terraces in my 15 years of playing football because I just, I just don't notice it. And then you do have players who, who are a lot, a lot, more, sens- you know, a lot more responsive to, to the energy in the stadium and they, and they do feed off of it and you, and you can see them kind of using that positively. Is that something you notice when you, when you speak to players on a one-to-one basis around their different reactions? And, and is there advice you can give them as a psychologist around how to do that in the right way? Because I imagine in both examples, sometimes it's good to freeze things out, but sometimes maybe maybe it's better to be more in tune with what's going on with the atmosphere. What, what's your take on that? Well, I think, it's, I think it's about trying to understand noise as energy. And, yep. and rather than focusing in on the what exactly has been said <laughs> and how it has actually been said, because that can be difficult and can be a distraction. Um, and, and certainly, you know, at Wickham there, most recently, there, there's been some, some really appalling fan behaviour, um, particularly um, aimed at Bayo Akinfenwa. Interestingly, he wasn't actually on the pitch at the time. So um, I'm, I'm kind of getting lost a little bit here. But what I'm saying is that noise undoubtedly is energy. The, the specifics of it can be unhelpful to focus in on that. And the reality is, is regardless of what that noise is around you, your job is within the confines of the pitch. That, that, that is the only thing that you can control. And if you're constantly being distracted by what's going on around you, then how are you able to be in the moment in the play? Now, of course, you know, there are times when the play stops and then maybe, you know, it's easier for you to kind of absorb that. But in, in the moment, it's not really very helpful. Yeah, I remember, I mean, different sport. I remember, I think it was Austin Healy years ago talking, 
about a, uh, a a phrase I think not dissimilar to the kind of victory everywhere that, that you were talking about, Misha, that the, the the England rugby team that he was part of used to to basically kind of go to at certain points during games if they felt the situation was getting out of control. I can't remember exactly what the phrase was, but it was it wasn't too dissimilar to, to, to the one that you were you were talking about there. Uh, with the the idea that it would just help focus people, you know, if they felt uh, at any stage the mat, that they were losing control of the match situation, you know, was that that that, that phrase they come back to? Yeah, I think what you're talking about is managing momentum. Mm. You know, because actually um, there are many ways that you can manage momentum, and within a game, momentum swings. You know, one side has it, then it then it moves, then it moves, and then. I guess it's about trying to understand that your vulnerability when and recognize it, you know, when you feel like momentum is going away from you, how can you recognize it soon enough to do something specific to bring it back to then take charge again? Um, so I think that that's probably what he was talking about is managing those, those moments of momentum where it feels like you are being dominated what do you then do? Can we have a strategy? Can you can you look to change the momentum? Because there, there are many ways in which you can get momentum back if you're aware that it's slipping away from you. And I guess a tool like that, it, it almost acts like a rally point, doesn't it? So you know, if you are losing control, it's like, right, we, we, we regroup, gather around this point that we've discussed in the past, and we're almost back to where we were, which was, right, what do we do to control this? You know, you know, let, let's remember what we learned this week in training rather than kind of focusing on what's happening in the here and now. Yeah. And I mean, um, teams will will recognize what those strategies are, because as you said, they will have been spoken about. They will have been rehearsed. People understand what other players are doing. And, and, and then that might also might be a signal for them that actually, hang on a minute, we need we need we yep. need that breath we need to reset and we uh, can we speak a lot about reset recover come again you know um and 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 also specifically about managing momentum um as well which is which again is is really important and something that, that i suspect will be be critical in in the weeks in the weeks to come as well which which leads us Seamlessly onto our second topic. <laughs> the segues are so sweet on this show, guys. Um, which is the the, the run in. So we're we're entering the, the final phase of the of the season, uh, and the the traditional take on this is that yeah, players become you know, much more susceptible to pressure as as the as the as the, the the end of season fixtures pile up, and then you know there's definitely. Definitely evidence to to support that, but you know, Misha, someone that's kind of worked with you know the England women's team, I suppose in pressurised situations like the the Euros that you were talking about, and, and Wickham, yeah. Um, what is it like when it gets towards the end of the season in that that kind of environment? I mean, you're right because, of course, you know, in November you've got loads of games to put it right, and in March you have less games to put it right. So therefore, of course, it changes, it changes the feelings. And it, in a sense, it, it turns those games into more meaningful events. It's, it's, it's mad, really, because, of course, as, as um, you were saying earlier, you still get three points in November in the same way that you get three, three points in March. Um, but it, it, feels, it feels different. It feels different. And 
how we interpret the situation, how we, the labels, the language that is used around the game starts to shift, starts to change. Um, and, and I think that that's really what you're talking about here, particularly when things are almost possible, you know, when it's, and in a sense, this is, this is, this is where we're, this is the journey that we're on at Wickham really. Well, you're in a, yeah, you're in a fairly tense uh, playoff push this season. And yeah, when we were sure. coming up with this topic, we were thinking about relegation, European places, promotion, playoffs. Yeah. yeah. Do, do, do you have to work harder as a psychologist in March than you do in November then, Mitch? Is that what you're saying? I have been quite busy this week, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> yeah, quite busy on Monday before the game on Tuesday. Um, <laughs> but, but, but yes, of course. And, and, and the thing is, is, is about, creating a space where those conversations are able to happen you know um rather than everyone pretending it's the same it's like okay let's let's understand what's going on here let's let's um uh look at how we how we move through this and and again there's you know there will be work more work being done on it and 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 in a sense sometimes the work that i do is with the manager or with the with the coaches certainly with, um, and, and I might give them ideas of maybe go have a chat with this player, maybe have this conversation because I'm aware that this person is maybe um, feeling a little vulnerable or struggling with some stuff. And so it's not always me that does the work, but maybe I enable that work to happen in different ways. I mean, that, that's an interesting point as well, Mitch, isn't it? Because the, the other thing that sort of the end of the season and the run-in comes with more pressure. So as you said, games against teams that you're probably expected to beat earlier in the season and wouldn't think too much about it suddenly become bigger games with more with more meaning. And, and actually, the other thing that tends to happen at the end of the season is it's quite a relentless fixture schedule. So, you know, particularly in a, in a COVID hit season where there's been postponements and things like that, you've probably got the games coming thick and fast, each of those games having more meaning attached to them. So I imagine psychological fatigue is like a real danger to players who kind of just got this relentless conveyor belt of massive games one after the other. That must be a real kind of concern from, from your point of view. It's it, What's interesting is that sometimes that is a benefit. The reason I say that is because if something hasn't gone as you wanted it to, then you don't have long before you can be yeah. right. Yeah. And, and, and often players speak about that. You know, it's like, okay, well, we'll come again. You know, we'll fix it. We, we've, this game is now where we need to put all our attention. Um, whereas if you, if you don't have a game for a long time, sometimes that can be also problematic because maybe people dwell on what didn't go well maybe they kind of replay it maybe you know it becomes it becomes a a bigger burden whereas if you then play the next game it's like okay that's that's now we're moving forward again now that's done now so I think players often want to do that they want to put it right they want to play the next game Um, but of course it is a it is a big ask you know Tuesday Saturday Tuesday Saturday is 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 challenging emotionally physically um and and for the staff as well by the way not just Mm. the players because everyone has been doing this you know this constant cycle and so how everyone everyone manages their own recovery staff included is is really really important i I suppose that that potentially kind of brings us back to that point we were talking about 
on the first topic, which is that kind of focus on on process rather than than outcomes. It's interesting actually um, that 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 Steve Peters is the former Liverpool psychiatrist. He he said that this is an interview conducted a few years ago. He said about the running that the teams kind of needed to to realise that it wasn't about trying to jump three or four hurdles at a time, kind of using the analogy of a hurdles race. He said, you, you've got 10 to jump. You know, you need to kind of think yeah. proactively about how that's going to, how that's going to pan out. But I suppose that's much more, that's easier said than done, right? In, you know, in a, in a such a packed schedule. I mean, he's right because I, I can't play game 10 before I played game one. And, and, and if my, if I'm future focused, I'm not managing the here and now. And so for me, it's really important that we, we play in the moment. The only things I can control is now. That's it. And, and literally, that's, that's how, how we have to keep doing it, keep pulling that, that narrative back into this game, this moment, us here together, what can we achieve? How can we achieve it? I think another thing that occurs to me about about we talked about the running, we talked about the the, the fixture schedule. One of the other things that seems to be a feature of teams that manage run-ins uh, successfully is kind of involving the whole squad. So it stops being about the, the the best eleven, and it's about bringing some of the more fringe players in the squad and giving them a role to play, and empowering them to kind of fit in and and kind of get up to the psychological speed of the rest of the squad. Is, is that something that you know that must be happening at Wickham at the moment? There's, there's players that are suddenly realising actually, I'm not necessarily a starter, but I've got a really massive role to play between now and the end of the season, and that must be a good thing and a bad thing, I guess. Like it, it, it can be an opportunity, but it can be a, a risk. I think, yeah, I think you raise a number of of important issues there, really. You know, the role of the subs is absolutely critical. And, you know, one of the things I make sure I always do is is spend time with the players who, who are on the periphery sometimes because their role might be absolutely crucial. Um, And if they're feeling that they're not valued, if they're feeling that they're on the outskirts, if they're feeling isolated, then actually that's not going to be helpful. So how you create that inclusiveness and just look at the behavior of players who are who are not playing but are in the squad. How, how do they behave? What do they do? You know, how do they bring their energy? How do they, how do they connect with everyone else? And, and I think it's testament to, to those players who are able to still be present, still connect with the, the team that's on the pitch, even though they're not going to get on the pitch, that speaks to the connection and the, um, the energy between players and the feeling of we're all in this together. Every person is valued. And, and, and it's interesting how you, how you work with those players because they're they're hugely important, you know. If in training they're they're not giving their all, then actually they're not helping anybody else. If they're going, ah, I'm not going to play, so what's the point? Then, then you have a problem. Whereas if it's a perception of my job right now might be in training, my job right now might be to provide the biggest opposition, the biggest challenge that I can. Because if I do that, then that's going to help you know, Fred, do his job better. But again, it's about what's the culture of the club? How is that culture created? 
and and whether players actually are able to do that, whether they feel that they are valued regardless of of, um, whether they're playing or not, I think is really powerful in, in how people then behave. Such an interesting point, Misha. It really, it really is. Uh, I was just just thinking about it's it's not a run in per se, but you know the the, the parallels are there. Uh, so you know when I think when England kind of last, last played their, their last major tournament, I think Gareth Southgate was kind of talking about how he selects the squad, and I think he, I'm sure it's kind of one point he kind of talked about the fact that this is such an important dimension. You know, when you've got players who really are going to spend the tournament you know, on the outskirts, on the periphery of the squad. It, it, it's, and people kind of pour scorn on this, but it's not just about their technical ability. You know, the, the character of the individual is, is so, so important. And I think sometimes, and, you know, I, I'm kind of certainly guilty of this as, you know, speaking kind of as a, as a, as a fan, you know, you, you kind of forget that to some extent. And you kind of think, well, why is he, why is he picked, you know, so-and-so? And, um, you know, I think actually Eric Dyer was a really, it's a really good example. Speaking as a Spurs fan, you know that there was talk about him going to, to the Euros last summer, and and I just kind of think he's had a really poor season on the pitch. But actually, kind of subsequently, you know, there's a couple of interviews, and and Southgate just talks about the leadership qualities that he possesses off the pitch and how important yeah. that is to the squad. Yeah, huge, huge. I mean, certainly when I was in England, you know, I'd spend a lot of time working with the subs. And, and, and at Wickham, it's the same. I mean, at Wickham, it's quite fluid. You know, people are in and people are out. So it's quite fluid. But there is a group of players as well who, you know, um, who need to feel valued and have a huge role to play. You know, when you're in the dressing room and everyone's in the dressing room, whether they're a starter, whether they're on the bench or whether they're not even in the squad, what does that then say about the unity of that? It's, it's powerful. It's meaningful. And, and as I said, the other thing is the bits that you don't see is what happens in training because the 11 players who are starting, they need to train against players who are not starting. So what happens to the quality of that work if those people who are not starting are feeling that they're less than, you know, that they're not feeling that they're valued? well, what's going to happen to the quality of their work? And then if their work isn't good, that, of course, is impactful for the starters. So I think, you know, there are, there are more complexities at play here. And, and in a sense, you know, the, the public just sees the game. They don't, they don't necessarily see the subtleties of, of the work that goes behind the game, the work that happens on the training ground, you know, which is absolutely crucial. It's a really good point, John, that you made around the, the the picking of an England team. I suppose that's quite a unique thing, or, or a squad rather, for a tournament. That's quite a unique thing in football. And I guess there is that tendency to think, oh, you just pick the twenty three best players and you're done. But actually, what you're what you're building there is a team and a team dynamic, and you've got all of that kind of stuff that isn't necessarily football related. You know, all that management theory, personality types, all of those things. Actually, you're trying to pick twenty three bits of a jigsaw that connect in the best possible way and create the best dynamic. And you've got a nod to kind of having the, the, the you know, an 11 at any point in time that is technically good as well. So it is interesting that you, you know, we probably don't think that that's as much of the role of the England manager, but actually that's probably 50% of it, I would have thought, is uh, is creating a 23-man squad or a 23-woman squad, which is is the right squad, the right balance of those different aspects. 
Yeah, because particularly in a tournament, those those people are living cheek by jowl with each other. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's no escape. Uh, you don't come up for air until the tournament's finished. So, you know, how those people contribute is is absolutely huge, absolutely huge. And and a lot of it is unseen, but powerful and important. I remember when we spoke to Gareth and Richard, uh, Misha, they, they mm. talked about, you know, I mean, them being the classic example of an extrovert and an introvert. Yep. It just makes me think if you had 23 massive extroverts in your squad, living cheap, living cheap by jowl. Yeah, never going to work. Too much ego. <laughs> probably, wouldn't, probably wouldn't make it to the third group game, let alone. Unlike, exactly right. And, and people have power in, in different ways, you know, and, and, uh, Gareth and Richard are perfect examples of that, you know, in terms of how how they also connect with different players as well. Yeah. So talking about peripheral characters and substitutes, uh, <laughs> leaders. I mean, the, the segues are coming out thick and fast, guys. <laughs> they're they're, they're, they're laboured at best, John. They're laboured at best. <laughs> <laughs> Leads us nicely to our third topic. So. Last weekend, as we record this, uh, Chelsea lost the the League Cup final to to Liverpool. And for anyone that didn't watch the the game, it was it was nil nil um, going into the last minute of of extra time. At which point, Chelsea decided to bring on uh, Kepper uh, for for Mendy. Um, with the with the 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 forthcoming penalty shootout in in mind, so this that there that there was a precedent here. Kepper had done um, Kepper had done this before for Chelsea. He's got really good penalty saving record. It should be said. He then came on, proceeded to to save none of the penalties that he that he faced, um, and then because it had gone into sudden death at this point, missed the the deciding penalty that that he was forced. To take, Misha. We were talking about this just before we came on. On it, I mean, I, I've, yeah, I've, I haven't come across a situation like that um, before. What kind of of impact will will kind of that have have had psychologically on, on you know on those on those players involved? So you know, Kepa and many in particular, I suppose. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of psychological challenge in in that scenario, isn't there? Um, and depending upon who you are, you're going to be feeling it in a very very different way. Um, the expectation for Kepper coming on is you must, you can, you you can you can save these penalties. Therefore, you can save us. Um, so because of his past experience he he may be well thinking yeah okay I can absolutely do this um and it's likely that the other players will be thinking yeah this is fine we've done this before we know how it works we trust in this process it's going to be it's going to be fine the problem is is that as a goalkeeper you have very little control in a penalty shootout it's kind of stacked in the favor of the striker so um whilst you know, goalkeepers become heroes when they when they save penalties. It, it's for the reason that it is unlikely that they're going to do so um, because of, of, of the way it's stacked. The other challenge for him was that probably no one was assuming that it would get to the place where every single player had gone through and, oh, goodness me, now we've got, we've, now the keeper has to do it. That, again, is an unlikely scenario and quite possibly because he literally had just come on, he had not kicked a ball. 
So if you don't kick a ball, how you're not warm, you know, you're, you need to kind of go through some of those motions to actually um, warm up the, the motor skill. And he, and he hadn't been able to do that. So that might be where he came a cropper because he actually hadn't, um, he hadn't kicked anything. So that's difficult. Whereas for Mendy, you also have another different challenge, which is one would like to think that, that he knew that this was going to happen. And, and as you were speaking about earlier, he actually played a really, really good game. So he was sort of firing literally um, and, and was having a good, um, a good game. Hopefully he understood that this was going to happen because if he didn't, he might also be thinking, well, they don't trust me. They don't think I'm good enough. This is this is really odd, given that I've been playing so well in this game. How come I am being subbed? And again, it it depends on what was happening behind the scenes. You know, if it was understood, this is a strategy. This is what we're going to do. Everyone's buying into it. Then that's that's one thing. If not, it can unravel. It can unravel for Kepa later on and it can unravel for Mendy later on. So I think that there's work, different work to be done with both of them, really. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting, it's one of the penalty shootouts, one of those rare kind of you know, things in football where the, the psychology is laid bare, isn't it? Like, you know, I mean, it's there in all aspects of football, but as a, as a fan, you see it. I think, I think uh, in terms of what you were just saying, Misha, it, it sounds as if from Mendy's perspective, this is probably something that he was expecting to happen anyway. So I think that yeah. the psychological damage for him is probably less at, at a minimum, I would say. Yeah. But there is a, there is an interesting point you make, which is, at what point do you make a judgment that Mendy has had, you know, he's made countless saves in, in the game and actually, you know, his confidence and his psychology going into that penalty shootout, if he were to stay on the pitch, you know, there's that phrase, isn't there? He probably was feeling a foot taller than he actually was just sure. based on the momentum that he had psychologically from how well he played. At what point does that become a consideration? You think, actually, I know we've got this plan, but actually we're going to, we're going to go with the momentum on, in, on this particular example, because we think that's, that's the better thing to do. Cause obviously Kepa's coming in completely level, um, yeah. you know, he, he hasn't got any ups or downs you know, from having played in the match. Well, you, you raise an interesting point as well, which is Mendy being two feet taller. Um, there was some research done, which basically um, showed players, um, showed, sorry, showed goalkeepers either saving goals or letting goals in. And then they asked, they asked the players to um, judge how big they thought the player was. And it was the same player. It was the same goalkeeper, by the way. And when the goalkeeper was saving things, they perceived him to be much bigger. And when they saw, when they um, observed him missing saves, they perceived him to be a lot smaller. So they might have missed a trick with Mendy because of what had happened in the game, where he would have altered the perception of the opposition penalty uh. takers where they would assume that because he's been saving everything, that actually their perception of him was that he was literally bigger than he really was. And therefore, you could have impacted on their confidence and their perception of him. That's really interesting. I've not, um, I've not thought about that, but that is, that is really valid, I think. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. It's just, also, it's just, the, kind of, the, just the kind of observation that, um, the, the layman hands up would, uh, <laughs> would would come to you, but but have no idea that's kind of scientifically backed. That's really really interesting, Misha. Yeah, 
And 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 so, you know, if you're having to face a goalkeeper who is hot, <laughs> yeah. how, how are you going to approach that penalty that you take? And also the psychology of the whole 120 minutes has been Liverpool having chance after chance after chance and just thinking we can't get past this guy. Right. So you take right. that into the penalty shootout and, you know, that, that has got to be worth yeah, quite, exactly. a, quite a big advantage, hasn't it? So that's what I mean about missing a trick. And that's, and that's why you can have, you can have a, a, a strategy, but you also have to read the moments. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe... Maybe he didn't quite get it right on that. Maybe because he didn't he didn't think about Mendy and Mendy's impact on the game and how that would then be playing out for the Liverpool players. It's quite interesting as well, Misha, because mind games seems to be a a, a bigger part of penalty shootouts than than it put than it probably ever has been historically. Mm. There does seem to be a lot of. Um, it seems to be a, an accepted part of the of the routine now that you know keepers will try and kind of stand around the kicker and, and say the odd thing, or or sure. they'll do they'll do small little things to kind of put off the kicker. There, there was one particular instance in this shootout where I think Kepper was trying to sort of play some mind games. It was Virgil Van Dijk taking the penalty, and he sort of stood more to one side of the goal as if to say, "I want you to shoot where where the gap is biggest," and. I think it's, it was very interesting. Like a lot of people made a lot of it because Van Dyke stepped up and just went to the side of the goal where the keeper was stood, i.e., not the one he was being pushed towards. And Kepper got nowhere near it, and he absolutely yeah. leathered it past him, and and then kind of just stood there and kind of gave Kepper the eyes after that, as if to say, right. And it's a bit like what you were saying: dominance over. Just yeah. said, I see what you tried to do there; didn't yeah. work at all. Yeah. And after that, Kepper seemed to shrink a little bit more and kind of stopped trying as many creative things. Yeah. What's your take on mind games and and? you know, the psychology around things like that. I mean, they're obviously very specific interventions, but um, they're interesting. Of course, of course. And, and um, you know, there's, I, I think the reason that we, we have an understanding, no, that's not the right word. We see the mind games more obviously is because everything stops. Yep. But the reality is, is that those kind of things are happening all over the pitch all of the time but we don't see them in exactly the same way because the moments are fleeting. But be of, you know, those, those notions of dominance and how you can subtly influence the players around you, yeah, that's happening, that's happening everywhere all the time. Um, the, the penalties, of course, are a more controlled situation. And so you 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 have you have more possibility to be more um purposeful about how you do things you know and 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 of course there are there are strategies both for keepers psychologically and there are strategies for penalty takers and there's a lot of research and evidence about what makes a successful penalty shot because of course the reality is for the striker is that 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 strike is actually not a very difficult skill. What makes it difficult is the context, is the emotion, is that all of the other stuff around it that changes the, the player perception of, of their ability. Yeah, that, that's what happened. You know, um, Van Dyke clearly just absolutely dominated Kepper. And then, his, and then the players that came after him saw that. Yeah. So that, again, influences the other people who are... Who are, who are getting ready to take the penalty. It's, it's also, I think, kind of another interesting insight into 
how uh, psychologically demanding playing in goal is. I was just thinking back to kind of other goalkeeping, goalkeeping kind of performances of of Nate, and I, I was just thinking about Loris Carius, who you know famously you know, cost Liverpool the Champions League final, um, arguably. Um, a few seasons ago and I, I remember reading an interview with, with him afterwards and, and yeah, he was kind of just talking about the fact that it had taken him months to, to recover, to, to recover. Yeah, because yeah. that you are in like no other position on the pitch you, you know you are in the spotlight for your your mistakes um, I, Misha from your kind of experience of kind of working with teams are there kind of particular techniques that you have to deploy or, or you know sensitivity that you have to be aware of when you when you're talking to, to goalkeepers in particular I think um it, it depends on who the person is and what they need you know and and they're different um and you know we were talking earlier about subs you know I think one of the hardest sub positions to play is the number two goalkeeper mm-hmm. I think that's really that's really a hard place to to live so again it, it depends on who they are what they're coming with, um, where they are in their in their journey, you know, in their career, and again, it's one size really does not fit all. <laughs> and I, I guess the role the role of the psychologist is to to be sensitive to individual needs. Well, well, Misha, you told us before we uh, started recording that you hadn't really had much time to think about the, the topic about penalties. And uh, judge, judge you for what we've just discussed, that was, that was so interesting. There were, there were genuinely things there that I haven't read any commentators come up with over the last week. So thanks for that. Happy to help. <laughs> Guys, that's, that's about all we have time for this week, um, unfortunately. Thanks, Misha, so much for your, your time um, as, as ever. And, and best of luck. With the run-in, we've got our fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> here at Pod HQ. Um, uh, Luke, thanks as, thanks as always. Thanks, John. And thanks very much for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please do leave a review on your, your podcast platform of choice. It really helps. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. So um, until then, uh, take care. Take care.